Welcome back to the Curiosity Collective podcast. I'm Katie Langley. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, visit our website at curiosity-collective.org. Today, I am here with my friend Joni Wolf. I met Joni right after I returned to the country, probably in the beginning of 2017. Yeah, I think it was something like that. Yeah, and I applied for a position at the YWCA in my town that had to do with um, domestic violence that I was highly unqualified for, (laughs) um, but I really, really had a heart to get involved and to do a little bit more with that population, and Joni worked there. Yeah, it was really interesting how we kind of came up and met each other. You know, it popped up in my calendar that we were having this interview with a Katie Langley, and I looked at it, and I was like, Well, there can only be so many Katie Langleys in York here, so it's just interesting how it all came about. Joni, as it turns out, is married to a boy that I grew up with and considered a brother for the most part. I was going to say, they were pretty much besties growing up. Yeah, that's pretty much true of that whole family, and so it was a really special connection. So, Joni, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up before we jump into the work that you're doing now? So I actually grew up not too far from here uh, in Mechanicsburg, which is about 40 minutes north of here. Um, My family moved there in, I think it was like 86 or something like that. I was born in a small town in western Pennsylvania where most of my family still resides um, in Oil City, which is a very small town on the side of a, uh, a mountain. So my family had then moved here because of my dad's work. And we've really been here ever since. My family is all still up in Mechanicsburg. Um, I went off to Westchester for college. um, And that's where I met my husband. We met the very first day of college, but then didn't get together until after college. I didn't know that. Yeah, we were friends all through college, went to each other's parties, houses, hung out, all that kind of stuff. I, of course, had a crush on him the whole time. Oh, David. Yes. Well, David. (laughs) Um, But so, yeah, so that's where I met him and came back after college and started working at a uh, at-risk youth program, actually, through my old high school, where we were um, mentoring youth who were more at risk of, like, getting into the wrong crowd and there was some red flag behaviors that were happening. Maybe they just needed some extra social skills, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, so when I went to Westchester, I started off at uh, physical education. Actually, oh, did you? I wanted to be an elementary school phys ed teacher. I wanted to be the person playing with the parachute the whole time and <laughs> the little scooters, and I wanted to be that person. I had an incredible mentor growing up that was my elementary school phys ed teacher, and I still am in contact with her today. She's just an incredible person, that's really so sweet. that's why I wanted to do that. But then after working at this at-risk youth camp, I just realized I wanted to make more of a difference. Yeah. Didn't know how or what way I was going to, but I just, excuse me, wanted to make more of a difference in a child's life. So how did you, and I should have said this in the beginning, that the content for this particular podcast today is going to be really, really, really loaded with potential um, trigger warnings and stressful content related to all sorts of horrific things like sexual abuse and trauma and sex trafficking and so I want to make that really clear everywhere that you know consider yourself warned with potential content that's coming yeah and please reach out to your local center should you need any sort of support Um, there's always a local center nearby or the national hotlines you can reach out to them and they can point you in the right direction for support and we'll include those too Mm -hmm. we'll include all of the places Mm -hmm. that you can go in the in the notes so how did you segue from working with at-risk teens to the work that you're doing now? Um, So I lived in Philadelphia with 
uh, my now husband, David, and I was working at a juvenile, a first-time juvenile offender program to get them to get to expunge their record, essentially. So it's like the incident had never occurred and it's not on their record and right. they can move forward. We were moving back to the area because we were going to really settle down, get married, have kids, all that, you know, s typical family <laughs> stuff. And I needed a job and this position um, had an incredible leadership um, that I really was drawn to. I truly did have to think about if I wanted to do this work or not. Um, the weight of the work I was a little nervous about, but I will tell you it's the best decision I've ever made mm. in my life. It has completely opened up my viewpoints on things, on issues that I don't think I can ever go back on. Yeah, you can't unsee the work that you've I done. I can't unsee yeah. these things anymore. Yeah. Why don't you explain to people who are listening exactly what it is you do? So I work for the YWCA and um, here in our local area. And what we do is actually a whole slew of things. Um, but really, I work in victim services specifically. So we are working with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, as well as human trafficking and kind of everything in between. We really deal with trauma. Um, and what's really cool about the organization is that everyone's main goal is to really help the survivor out, no matter what department you're in. All of our goals are to help a survivor out. And how I do that is I help train any of the new advocates coming in working with people. So mm. my responsibility is around our initial training that to gain our confidentiality privilege. And it's actually one of the most incredible things in Pennsylvania that we have as victim advocates. So that covers um, any sort of one-on-one -on -one communications that you may have with a between a victim and an advocate. Those communications are kept confidential. So if we receive a subpoena to as an advocate to talk about maybe there's a custody battle going on, and they want to know about this client or this survivor's, you know, behaviors and stuff like that. If they subpoena us, we can squash it, and we do not have to testify <clears throat> if it's not in the best interest of that client. Right. Right. So amazing. it's it's amazing. Not all states have that. Pennsylvania is very unique in that aspect. Um, so it's really super incredible. It, that it, you are doing incredible work. And one of the things I have said this to you, and also the woman whose name I actually forget, who was so lovely, who interviewed me. She was the boss who called me to say, "You're great, but you're not qualified." The people, the people that I met were are every single to a fault were phenomenal humans. I mean, the work that they were doing, the personality it was as as much as I very well understood that I wasn't qualified I was as sad to not be able to work with those women because they were all exceptional people it was an incredible team and I then the team has changed a lot since you've been gone but it's still so such incredible people that I really get to work with every day and it's really what drives me to do oh, more sure. of the work um, because we have the people that do the direct service that are in our shelters, you know, that's their main job is working directly with clients in our emergency shelter. There's people that are doing case management and doing um, uh, our transitional housing. So they move from our 30-day shelter if they need more 
support, they can go into our bridge transitional housing where they can stay up to a year. Oh, wow. And so, and we all help them out through every step of the way, coming up with a budget, um, coming up with food plans. This is some of the things that um, these survivors have may not be able to do previously. Right, like tangible, tangible, tangible. You're meeting very tangible needs in and addition to keeping them safe. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, think about there's a whole financial abuse aspect to domestic violence where they may never have been able to open up a bank account or they are given 20 bucks to go get a loaf of bread and milk, but they have to get every single cent back to that right. uh, abuser. So right. it's just helping them out with those small steps yeah. so that we can really get them standing on their own two feet because that's the ultimate goal right is that they don't need us anymore right. we are always right. here for support but we don't want we don't want them to need us anymore right. right i mean i think that's one of the things that um i have to be careful about my words it seems in my experience and exposure that that is one of the truisms in this work that the whole point is to empower to empower victims, to empower victims into survivors that they can stay, stand on their own two feet and go live their lives fully. Absolutely. All of these services that exist, however ill-funded, really do exist to empower and give independence to people that have been really, really um, squashed from that. That's not the best word. <laughs> and that's exactly what we do. We yeah. really work from an empowerment-based model of, okay, well, we need to call this person. I can't call for you, so how about, you know, we role play it out and see how you would react if, you know, this person would say this. Yeah. So that's really how we do it. Or we could say, hey, I'll sit here with you. So if you have questions, I can be here, but I, I think this is something you can do. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I wonder, could you explain a little bit to people what it actually means to become a victim advocate? Because I don't think that... Uh, might not be super well understood. It is, it is very, very, <laughs> it's not challenging, but it's a lot of information to become a victim advocate. So one of the caveats that has to be done is first off, you have to be overseen by one of the state coalitions. And that's either the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, PCADV, or the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, PCAR. Those are our two state funders, and they oversee the agencies in each area. So if you are funded by them, you have to take this 70-hour training, which is our advocate training. Right. Now, the statutes that guarantee the confidentiality privilege, they say you have to have a certain amount of hours for training. So there's a 40 hours for domestic violence specifically, and there's 40 hours for sexual assault specifically. Because the YWCA York is a dual agency, meaning we serve both victims of domestic violence as well as sexual assault, we are a dual agency, so we have to meet both of those standards. So instead, mm -hmm. and we know that there's so much intersection and overlap between mm -hmm. these two different, between these two victimizations, 80 hours is a lot of training. So we've narrowed it down to 70 hours. Right. So in order to be a victim advocate with your full confidentiality privilege, meaning you can't be subpoenaed to court or anything like that, you have to be overseen by one of the state coalitions. You have to have your um, advocate training, that initial training. And then you have to have continuing education um, 
throughout the year. That makes sense. So we're not, it's, so it's really important for this because then we can't just have everybody doing it, doing this work because then our clients necessarily aren't protected. So for example, if I just open up my own, say I wanna work with domestic violence victims, but I am not funded, I just said this is what I wanna do, I have a true passion for this work, which is really great. But then the problem is you're opening up all of that conversation of that victim that came to you for help. There is no protection for that victim right. so that you have to talk about it in court. Right. You are There's no protection for that client. Right. So that's why it's super important about the confidentiality yeah. privilege, especially working with victims. And that's why we always tell people, why don't you connect them with us? That way that conversation is private. Right, right, that totally makes sense. So, so, Anyone who has a heart to be an advocate can be trained through mm -hmm. these, if they're in, if they're, you know, central Pennsylvania is what we're talking about specifically, mm -hmm. though I imagine a lot of Ys have the same program, pro yes. program. And YWs all around have yeah. different programmings. There's some that are just fitness. There's some that are, you know, just domestic violence, all those kinds of things. Yeah. They do all sorts of different services. Sure. Um, but, but the... Oh, go ahead. So you can, though. If you mm -hmm. want to be an advocate, you can. The, it is a strenuous process. It mm -hmm. is obviously really needed. I mean, mm -hmm. I imagine that there's always a need. There is always a need. Because think of how, how many victims are truly out there. Mm -hmm. You know, the statistics are one in four women are victimized at some point in their lives. But that's only a third of what's really reported. Right. So what numbers we're seeing are probably vastly greater than what right. were reported. I um you and I spoke a little bit about this before we began recording, but part of um, my heart in this is um, I got to think about how to say this. <laughs> um, right, that I don't know a single woman on the planet. I don't know a single non-binary person. I don't know a single LGBTQ person who hasn't suffered repeatedly, 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 whether it's groping, whether it's being manhandled, whether it's street calling, whether it's being assaulted. I don't know a single person who hasn't experienced that so many times over. And yet, and yet we hear really commonly the cultural refrain is, but not me, not mm -hmm. me, I would never. And I so, so let's try to talk a little bit, Joni, about why the work of this is so, so important for everyone to participate in. You might be able to say it better than I can. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to swear because I know. <laughs> so it's very difficult because the word feminism has a lot of heavy meaning to it. And when people are said to be feminists, it's like, oh, I'm a man basher, mm -hmm. you know, I don't shave my armpits, mm -hmm. I, you know. Feminist agenda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that is so not what no. it is. It is about equality. And especially in this movement, women alone can't solve this themselves. Mm. Women alone mm. cannot solve this themselves. We need men in this movement. And I think what 
as a society we truly need to start doing is empowering our men too empowering our young boys to understand their emotions mm -hmm. that they don't just need to be tough all the time mm -hmm. it's okay to be upset about something yeah. it's okay to cry about something yeah. you know i'm not going to tell you to man up because that's probably the worst thing that you can say to mm -hmm. any man mm -hmm. you know or boy just in general yeah. so this issue is not going to be solved by just women. It is going to be solved by all. Men, women, non-binary. However you identify. However right? you That's identify. True. Yeah, because it's, you know, we're, maybe we should, so rape culture, maybe that would be worth defining, right? Because, you know, part of what rape culture is is the we perpetuate maxims like boys will be boys to excuse their behavior that we punish the woman who is raped far more than we punish what the man was she who wearing did what was she wearing right um that the onus of not being raped is on the victim and on the woman not on the not on the rapist right so that's that's just a little that's a little teaspoon of what rape culture means mm -hmm. and so um to your point, it's not about teaching little girls not to wear tank tops and not to show their shoulders. It's to teach little boys not to rape. It's to teach um, people, treat people kindly. Yeah, emotional intelligence, right? You get mm -hmm. frustrated and angry, that doesn't give you permission to To hit bludgeon, or, right? yeah, do whatever you need to do. Right. Exactly. Um, I'm so glad that you made a point to say that about the word feminism because I, it's almost, it isn't funny because these are the very direct implications of people perpetuating mistruths like that. But it almost, when people say, when I hear stuff like that, or I read people um, kind of perpetuating that really, really false, like tropey narrative, I almost, it's almost laughable. I'm like, mm -hmm. you clearly don't, you haven't even tried to understand it. If you're perpetuating things like that and you believe that, then you, what that tells me is you haven't made an ounce of effort to actually understand that I don't know anybody who loves men more than feminists who has a heart to say, oh my God, I would love for you to live fully into, into your humanity, into your vulnerability, into your emotional intelligence, into your softness. Um, I would love when, you know, a little boy says, oh my God, I love this bright pink tiara, or I love this bright pink car, that it's not like a funny joke, that being called a girl isn't a pejorative. This isn't, does that make me hateful? I don't really care what you call me, but this is what it means, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just, it's like, it isn't laughable because rape culture is a direct result of people perpetuating that, mm -hmm. which is infuriating. Um, and not only yeah. that, we also see it, you know, in the popular music that um, is going on. You know, I can think of about 15 songs off the top of my head that I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, are we listening to the words that are being said here? Um, and that's really hard. It's really, really hard. I did. I met this really, really, really lovely woman. She's up in, I think she's up in Vancouver, Canada, but I might be wrong. She might be in Montreal. <laughs> I might be like completely wrong. And she did, she's doing this series on trauma. Her name's Gabrielle Evans. And um, she's interviewing all sorts of different people on what their experience of trauma is. And I was really, so I got to meet her and do this thing with her. And I was so surprised because what came out of my mouth wasn't an acute point in my life that has been traumatic. It was to be born into the body of a woman is to be born into a state of trauma because you are never, ever, ever safe. You will never be safe and it will always be your fault. You will always be less than, you will always be at risk, you will always be vilified for saying a feeling, you will always be a bitch if you're angry. And it came out of, Joni, it came out of my mouth and I thought, well, I didn't even, 
it was that whole co our whole conversation was on that and i thought that's it mm -hmm. you, that's that's rape that's who we are that's where we are and so when we hear songs or there are all sorts of misogynistic jokes and tropes and things that are just perpetuated ad nauseum we don't blink an eye it's our normal it's our baseline mm -hmm. we don't even notice it yeah and it's really interesting you bring that up just like being born a woman you know there's a theory out there of like generational trauma mm. where you know you were in your mother's womb and well technically you were an egg in your mother's ovary at one point and then your mother was in her mother's mm. womb at one point so you are technically carrying the trauma from your grandmother epigenetics is that what it is? Epigenetics. I yeah. knew it was something. Yeah. It's a whole field. It's emerging. It's really, really fascinating. Um, and so when we talk about the different intersectional points, uh, particularly of marginalized groups, it's that much more compounded. Mm -hmm. Because I do want to be really clear. I am speaking as a cis woman, uh, as a cis straight woman. I'm white. I have all of these power um, notches, you know? And I, I want to be really clear about that because it's that much more loaded. Um, for people with different kind of identities. And I want to be really, really clear and explicit about that. But so, so there's a whole lot of work to be done. You're mm -hmm. in it. You're one of those very noble souls. How do you, well, before I ask you this, I'm really curious about one of the things I like to talk to people about is what they understand or believe power is. Oh, man. <laughs> and most people respond that way. <laughs> uh, power is a massive topic in the field that we do. Mm. Um, it doesn't come up. It, we, we basically, t it's come up in every conversation five times. There's always some thing we're talking about with power. Um, but what's really interesting is we have a whole section dedicated in our initial training mm. to choice and power. And we go over the definitions of like what power is. Like it's literally just having, and I don't want to use the definition in the defining, but having power over another, having that extra step above what that other person is. So I don't know how to best. So, so think about it. Okay. That's interesting. That's so interesting because one of the things that I have, I'm hearing a lot from people, the default response, I think in my experience, I'm going to be really clear with some of the women that I have asked of this, um, of multiple races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, gender expressions, even, um, it's, it's automatically a bad, scary thing to avoid and not take responsibility for power is bad don't have power only people with egos have power only people with it's it's only something that i've experienced through the lens of some form of mm -hmm. abuse or um exploitation and i thought and, and so it's been a really interesting theme for me this year to explore it in myself because i i think it has potential to be more than that i think there's so much power in our agency in our choice i think we all have it mm -hmm. oh absolutely and but learning that and learning how to embody that and and um, take responsibility for that is almost it's it is countercultural, mm -hmm. I think, because we're taught submit, submit, be meek, say yes, do what the, do what you're told. I mean, it's the cultural messaging is really distorted around it, I think. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that helps. Or well, no, <laughs> no. Um, 
No, because it's really interesting that you say that because our choice and power lesson, it's taught by a fantastic coworker that is one of my favorite people in the whole entire world. Um, she's one of our uh, trauma counselors. Mm. So she's, you know, seeing people day in and day yeah. out, just sitting through therapy session, therapy se counseling session, counseling session, counseling session. So she teaches all about choice and power, but what we teach it from, we are teaching people how to give our survivors choice and power back. Ah, right. That's a, So right. we talk about with our clients that, look, your power was taken. So we're going to help you try and get that back. I love that. And these are the steps that we're, first off, we're not going to tell them what the steps are. That's the empowerment piece that comes right. into play. Right. Because they want to have their choice back. Right. They want to have their power back. Now, it does... Um, make things difficult sometimes because survivors are so used to pleasing other people that what we find sometimes is that they will tell us what they think we want to hear. And we have to work a lot of the times with them to be like, no, what do you want? Right. This doesn't matter to me. This is your life. Right. If this isn't what you want to do, that's totally fine. Right. So for a prime example that I talk about in our initial training is, look, you're going to have people that come into our emergency shelter that you're going to be working with for about a month, and you're going to do awesome progress. The, pro the issue that may come into play at the end of the month, they may decide it's easier for them to go back to their partner. You cannot be judgmental in that right. situation because what happens when they need us again. Right. If we are judgmental, they're never going to reach back out right. to us and get that support. Right. So I have to try and prepare these new advocates. Look, this is a very real possibility. Right. They may come just for the weekend to get away right. they, and come back. They, they say the average is seven times for a domestic violence victim to leave. Before they leave for good. Before they leave for good. So it's, it's, think about that, seven times. So we need to, as advocates, need to understand that because... Someone, someone going through trauma especially is not going to figure things out in 30 days. And we know oh, that. Oh, yeah. I mean. There, oh, yeah. I've been dealing with trauma I've had my entire life. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. just, no, I've dealt with ways to calm it down, mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of just deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the trauma that, complex trauma that these victims may be coming from because we're not talking about just maybe domestic violence we're talking about maybe they have childhood abuse sexual mm -hmm. abuse in there as well mm -hmm. so we're uncovering all of these layers right and some people may not be ready to deal with that and we need to understand that that's okay right because we can't force it upon them right and that just you're just kind of manipulating in the it, it, that's as it has potential to be as manipulative what they're, and as what they're coming from yeah um do you uh, could you, I, I do you want to explain just a little bit about, I don't know if you would know this in terms of numbers, but the difference between, like, what is complex trauma and complex PTSD? Because that's a different thing. Yes. It is, I imagine the vast majority of your client, the people that you work with mm -hmm. and are trying to support would fall under that umbrella. Yeah. A lot of um, our complex trauma that we see is our human trafficking survivors. So not only are they coming to us as a human trafficking survivor, which is a dynamic victimization in and of itself, uh, because it is a form of domestic violence, it is a form of sexual assault, and it's a heightened sense of it. Yeah. So we have to uncover those layers. But what we see a lot with our human trafficking people is that they were abused as children maybe their parents were their first traffickers, right. you know? So 
there's all those childhood things that they may be coming to us with. You know, maybe they came from a very poor family, um, something like that, that they were not able to have anything. So they engaged in survival things. Right. They stole right. to right. survive. Um, I worked with a kid one time, um, not at the organization, but they were in a program because they had stolen deodorant. Right. So that's so, I mean, I don't want to say that's so, I don't want to be cavalier, but when we're talking about the reality of poverty and the lack of choice and agency that one has when one is living in deep, deep poverty, these are the things. Mm -hmm. This is what our whole system is mm -hmm. built upon. You know, we make a shit ton of money in the prison industrial complex on such things. Mm -hmm. We keep people really poor and then it benefits people. Yes, yep. unfortunately. The wrong people. The but yeah. yeah. So it's, but it's, we have another um, shelter that we have um, in Hanover, actually. Stillwaters is what it's called. And that's where we have house more of our complex trauma. It's a six-month stay, so it's that that's extended good. emergency stay that we can do. Um, and so they can go to this shelter, and they can stay there, and they'll have more intensive case management. So we can really start unpacking some of yeah. those layers. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the reality of who is most at risk and some of the misinformation that abounds when it comes to victims of sex trafficking and the how prolific it is? It's unfortunately happening in everybody's backyard. Um, it is not, it's kind of one of those things that doesn't discriminate in our world, which is really uh. fascinating. When someone told me that, I was like, it's one of the things that doesn't discriminate in our world. It doesn't matter who you are, if they can Exploit. Thank you. Exploit. exploit. <laughs> it's been a long time. It, if they can exploit something, they're going to. So you have this very vulnerable person. Um, let's just say a lot of the vulnerable populations that we see among sex trafficking is LGBTQ youth, runaway youth. Um, and what we see there is a lot of times they're engaging in more survival sex. Mm -hmm. So they need somewhere to stay. Right. Oh, well, I'll go have sex with that person. They right. can provide me a place to stay. Mm -hmm. um, I need food. So this right. is what I'm going to do. It's a desperate, it's a, I need to stay alive. It's, I, I need I to, to stay do? alive. Yeah. But it's safer for me to do that than be at home right. with my family who may be abusive. Right. You know, there's a reason they ran away. Correct. So Correct. Um, what's unfortunate, though, is sometimes when these youth run away to bigger cities, they come to the train stations and they're like, you know, big eyed looking yeah. around the cities and there's people standing there. Yeah, yeah they know. Just looking to pray. Yeah. So it's just. And what we see a lot of the times is um, grooming through social media. So. Lots of, I have a couple of nieces that are on social media now, and it makes me super nervous because of the <laughs> things I know, but I'm not her mother, and, mm -hmm. you know, she makes the right decision. She's a fantastic little girl, so <laughs> yeah. a fa fantastic young woman, I should say. Yeah. Um, but she'll get friend requests from these random people, and it's just like, no, you, you just, no, don't do that. No, no. Do, no, don't, don't no, do no. that. Um, so, and so they'll be friends with them and then they'll end up meeting up with them right. and they'll find themselves in a situation that they don't know how to get out of. And now they can't tell their parents or reach out for help or anything. Right. So that's a lot of what we see. We also see, and those are the people that are usually sleeping in their houses, in their beds every night. Right. They're right. still living at home. They're, they're right. not. And that's another part of rape culture, right? Another part of rape culture is that if you're born into the body of a girl, you're going to be sexualized from the minute you're born. 
You, you got to put her in a pretty dress. You got to make her smile. I oh, have honey, a, you got to smile to me. You're going to be a heartbreaker when you're older. Oh, you're going to dance with your like. I have a one and a half. That. I have a one and a all half year that. old, yeah. and it's really hard to find a bathing suit for her. It's really hard to find clothing that don't have ruffles all over them. Right. I am not a girly girl <laughs> in any means, shape, or form. I'm a sweatpants, sneakers, mm -hmm. t-shirt type of girl. Mm -hmm. Have been my whole life. I was the girl playing mm -hmm. in the mud. I w so. My daughter is not a girly girl. Right. So I don't want to put her on all these right. fluffy... You don't want to sexualize your baby. Yeah. And I, I had such a hard time finding a bathing suit for her. The one didn't cover her chest. The other was like a bikini. And I'm like, she's one and a half. I don't want to put her in a bikini. Right. So it, finally I found one, but it was just, it was such a hard right. time. I had a, one of my girlfriends has a, she's, I think her baby's almost two. And she had an experience with a man with a stranger, with a stranger and a man at a post office who commented on how pretty her daughter was, how much trouble she was going to be when she was older. Why won't she smile at me? I mean, the baby, baby wasn't, she might be too. Um, and these, again, these are all things that are so socially sanctioned and normalized. We don't even pause to say, you know, it's not normal to sexualize a baby. You know, it's not normal to comment on an 11 year old's like, you, you know that, right? Or but just we going up and touching people. I remember when I was oh. pregnant. Oh, yeah. I had, and it wasn't, it was older women. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it's, was, it was the grandmas that always mm -hmm. came over and would touch my belly. Mm -hmm. There was definitely people that I was friends with. They're like, can I touch your belly? But thank you for asking for permission. Right, right. we don't. But like, please don't randomly just touch my belly. I, I want to say, I might, be, I might be saying the wrong book here, but there, there's a really phenomenal book called Killing the Black Body, written by Dorothy Roberts. Um, who's an attorney and she's brilliant and it's all about reproductive justice it's a historical sort of like narrative of all of that and just the reality of not having agency over our particularly as black women not having control or choice over their own bodies um, ever in our country and um, because of so many injustices and systemic things that whatever and she talked about I think it was her I might be maybe it's not from that book but I'm pretty sure it's her saying you're a public work you're, you belong to the public, your body is not yours, people can touch you without consent, people can experiment on you, people can force you to have an IUD, it doesn't, it's not yours, right? You are a, an object to be um, controlled by the state sort of thing. And it's, but I've heard that before too, that, that the, I've heard other women say similar things that when they're pregnant they lose their autonomy. Mm -hmm. People believe that you're like a public, yeah. for the public consumption. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've been very fortunate, <laughs> I guess you can say fortunate, um, with the pandemic happening, we didn't take our daughter out at all. Right. So we, I mean, she was born three weeks later, everything shut down. Right. So my husband took three weeks off for work. He went back for one day and they called him the next morning and said, don't come in, we're shutting down. So it was just, we were new parents and yeah. into this weird new world that, one is parenting, but then we had pandemic on top yeah, of that. So wow, it was like, wow. you know, parents couldn't come over for right. support. So it was really just us right. and the toll that that took on. But it was really nice at the same time not going out because I was told a lot of times when she would be born that be prepared for people to like come up and like want to hold her, or touch her, yeah. you know, everything. And I'm like, eh, I don't like that. Mm -mm. So it's really interesting that we've been nice to be able to keep that we've at a distance a buffer, yeah. we've had a little buffer um but now we're starting to take her out into the world a little bit more and she's she's very timid with people yeah well, not in a bad way yeah, she yeah, still yeah. wants to connect yeah but 
She's very. She wants to see what's up. Yep. She, she wants, just to, see wants to see what's up. She's judging you. Mm-hmm. That's okay. She's mm-hmm. getting a little bit of discernment in that little baby body. Oh yeah. That mini mini David Wolf body. <laughs> oh, that mini David. She does have my specific hair though. The color exactly is David's, but the curliness. She has. She curly has the hair. curly hair. So. Um, we got. Looped off. Oh, we were talking about how very how common it is for people who are being sex trafficked to be groomed online. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, through. Just really any means. They'll sometimes just randomly friend request them and start talking. Um, and a lot of times what we see is they have their profiles and everything public so that they can see maybe they've been struggling a little bit or they don't feel connected to people or maybe they're having trouble with their parents. And so, oh, I'll step in and be the support system. Right. Yeah, I know. It's so heavy. It's so heavy. It's so heavy. And so that's a really nice segue into... How do you take care of yourself? You, your coworker. I mean, I know you can't speak for your coworkers, but I remember when I applied for this job, I, after my interview, I was like in love with all the women there. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I think I'll be a raging inferno of like despair for the rest of my life if I'm doing this 40 hours a week, um, which I'm not like proud of, but I just thought, I don't actually know how to do this realistically with my heart. And I think that's an incredible perspective to have, an incredible decision to make. Because we do have people that are super passionate about this work, but we see them burn out in six months. Oh, I'm sure. So I will say it is a constant battle for me for self-care. It's a priority. It's not a luxury that we Uh, get. Um, It has to be a priority. Yeah, you have to. Because, you know... (laughs) The saying, if you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. So how are we supposed to take care of our survivors and our clients if we can't even take care of ourselves? And that's actually a big part of the initial training that we talk about is being realistic Mm. about that. You know, what are your prior um, parameters? What are your boundaries? So for me, you know, everyone thinks we're crazy, but David and I wake up at 5 o'clock and we work out every morning Uh, not every morning but a couple times a week we work out um and I really throw myself into my family that's really where I find a lot of my support yeah my dog is I think the best medicine I really (laughs) my dog Dobby she's just so wonderful um, we got her from a prison rescue, actually. I didn't know that was... Oh, I have seen that. The guys re- rehabilitate Yeah, the so she was with an inmate for about six weeks. I love that. Um, up in northern Pennsylvania. Um, and I went and picked her up and went and met her and had to go to the jail to meet her. And when I went to pick her up, they were in lockdown, so I had to wait an hour oh my God. to get her. Oh and I was so worried about her the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I hope she's okay. You, like, rescued, like, a little survivor herself. I know. That's a really, what a great program. I mean, what a great, that's just such a great idea for so many reasons. Oh, my gosh. And she has just been a lifesaver for our family. Like, my husband, David, he was very adamant about she's sleeping in the cage. (laughs) She's never getting on our bed. She's never getting on our furniture. But who was the first person to say, well, can she come up on the bed? That's really cute. Well, they didn't grow up with, they didn't have dogs. No, they no, didn't. No, like, no, no. no. <laughs> they, had dogs. they didn't have dogs. No, that's, I can just, that's really sweet. Um, so, you know, our dog has been a big self-care. Um, 
I have a, a koi pond in my Do backyard. Do you have a koi pond? <laughs> yes, we, when we bought our house, it came with a koi pond. And I told David, we are never buying a house with a koi pond. I don't want to take care of it. But I love the koi pond. I talk Aww. to the fish. <laughs> we have a very massive koi about this big. Oh, my gosh. He's probably, what is that? Almost two feet, two feet long. That's, yeah. yeah. And he's in probably a 500-gallon tank, which is not a very big tank, but it sparkles. She has babies every year, so <gasps> we have lots of fish all the time. So it's really cool. I've been enjoying really taking care of the fish mm. and making sure the pond is good for them because if they don't have the right environment, they don't reproduce. So God, it, I'm just metaphor. like learning all these things. And then the sound of the waterfall that I have going, it's just so therapeutic at yeah, times. I bet. So that's lovely. And all of the things I've been doing a little bit of writing and stuff lately on play, play and pleasure and delight and how it's so, so, so good for our brains and our bodies and our relationships. And yet we're so conditioned to not prioritize it or to look down on it or our egos get in the way and we're like way too cool, mm -hmm. you know? I, I saw an interesting tweet the other day of like, don't tell moms that taking a shower is self-care. Right, because then they won't do it, right? They'll like have a, which is terrible. It's, no, that's just the daily function that you should right. do. I know, so, I know. Not, I mean, whatever, however you want to bathe, but you know. <laughs> it is though, it's, it's so, um, and you know, all of the, there's so much research to support being outside, being a, the nature, the water, Outdoors, the elements, we hike all the time. All it. It's what, it's the best medicine. Mm -hmm. We it, bought a really nice pack so we can take our daughter with us. Oh, like, I love And those. she goes hiking with us. David would have her, in, when she was little, like he would have her in the front carrier. And now we have like a nice hiking backpack yeah. that he carries. And she's just up there and she loves it. And we yeah. take our dog. And it's so good. It's so good. It's so good for healing. It's so good for trauma. I mean, yeah, I'm glad. I, I like, I really appreciate that you said that it's a prior, it's a priority, not a luxury. Mm -hmm. You it's have a, to. It's a priority and it's not a luxury. Yeah, you have to. And I think probably that's true for most people. We just don't own that. Well, we don't know that. And what I do at the very beginning of our training, I talk about self-care. Because we have a mindfulness initiative throughout the entire agency. So we do mindful moments before we um, start any meetings. Mm -hmm. We just kind of take a second so we can regroup our thoughts. Um, we have a mindfulness educator on staff, which is incredible she's such an incredible person um you can talk to her for five minutes and you feel so much better That's like awesome. you know but she talks about just recognizing without judgment right you know right. and the without judgment is the hardest part for me because totally. you know i'm like oh i'm so tired i don't want to do this and i'm like no right pause yeah. like feel pause. the feels without why are you, why are you yeah. feeling like this right acknowledge what you're feeling right, right. now so um, we we do things like that too, yeah. and in our um, in our initial training, we talk about self care. But I also have them do a self care bag, like a little kit for themselves. So I show I show off my self care kit of the things that I do to help rejuvenate me. Yeah, I have a picture of my family in yeah. there. I have bubbles to always remind me to be a kid. I have um, a basketball because I grew up playing basketball mm. and I love sports and I love being outside and just playing. Play. Like one Play. of the things my husband yes. and I do is we throw the baseball. Yeah. Like Jane will go down at seven o'clock at night and I'll be like, I'm going to go throw the baseball and we'll go outside and just throw the baseball. That's yeah. all we do. And yeah. it's just so therapeutic. And um, I'm a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. 
uh, living in Philly, it's a it's really hard to not be an Eagles or Phillies fan. Yeah. Um, so I do things like that. I show them um, chocolate, coffee, little simple things. Totally. It doesn't have to be this grandiose right. thing. I think we get lost in, oh, I have to take a vacation to really rejuvenate myself. No, can you take a bubble bath? Right. And I know right. it's just not that for everybody. It's not just taking a bath. It's not just about going for a walk. It's whatever it is for right. you. Right, that's exactly right. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be grand and expensive. Mm-hmm. Five, ten minutes. But after, Snuggle like, with cons- your dog. Oh, right. Ten minutes. Oxytocin oozing out your pores. Listen, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. On particular days, because I also do... Um, hospital accompaniment so if someone that's another thing that our agency does is that if you're a victim and you go to the hospital um and you say you're a victim of domestic violence or you've been sexually assaulted or raped or something um their protocol is to call our agency and we will go out and sit with you Mm -hmm. um provide services um how how we can really support you we can not have to talk about it at all. We can sit here and I can be emotional support for mm-hmm. you. I've sat there with, unfortunately, kids that I've sat there and let them put stickers all over mm. me. Um, I've sat there and watched SpongeBob with them. And just so, and in those moments, it's more of you're providing that support for the parents because right. they're just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And you're providing that support for the parents because yeah. the kid is super resilient. The kids that I've met are just incredible little human beings. Yeah. So I, I, I can I can only imagine. So after those particularly hard calls, there are times for my self care that I literally look at my husband. I say, "Can you hug me for twenty seconds?" Physical touch. And he understands that I can't say anything to him about what mm-hmm. happened, what I saw, what were, what was talked about. <laughs> it's hard. It's it's. And there's some calls that I still carry around with me today. I I, I imagine it would be impossible not to it's hard especially there was a couple of the first ones that I think about that and it's weird because what will happen is like flashbacks will happen I'll be stirring a pot cooking dinner and then all of a sudden that person will flash Mm -hmm. in my mind and I'll be like I really hope they're okay because part of our process is not know not following up because what if they do go back we don't want to have to call them and be like well why'd you go back right so it is their choice to do what they want that's exactly right so as part of my self-care i always put the happy ending in my brain Mm. with that as part of my self-care they did it they got the support they needed we provided that and i also hold on to the moments that when i'm you know this one particular person that i had um that was just a difficult situation Um, They looked at me at the very end, asked me my name again, and they said, I will never forget you. Mm. And those, I don't know if they will never forget me again, but those are moments that I really hold on to, those successes that you have. Or even those moments, it's like the connections, a really, really intimate human connection. Mm -hmm. You're not, you can't control for it. You don't know the outcome, but you are making like a heart to heart, soul to soul connection with somebody. It's making me think about, and I don't want to like appropriate your experience but I've had so many patients I've had so many patients that I will never ever ever forget and to this day I think god I hope uh you know especially I mean my the caseload that I worked with in Chicago was far more um you know it it tended towards a lot of violence a Mm -hmm. lot of violent crime a lot of domestic abuse oh my Um, gosh traumatic brain injury is one of the biggest things yeah you know we talk about it so much in the NFL but you know we're seeing worse cases in domestic violence cases. Every day. Every day. I mean, 
I mean, horrific. And, and in that, it was a different setting. It was a, my responsibilities were very different. Mm-hmm. But the reality of trying to rehab somebody who has experienced such horrific, horrific physical and sexual violence and is trying to, re, you know, their jaws wired shut. They have half a skull. They're trying to learn how to walk, how to speak, how to eat. They can't do anything. Um, and, and sometimes they will report to the police. And so sometimes their abuser is coming in to visit them. And some, and we don't, didn't, there's not always, we don't always have control, right? Again, their choice, their mm-hmm. power, their agency. Um, and that's so hard oof. as, especially for me as an advocate, and I'm sure it was hard for you to know that that's what their choice is and be like, no, your jo- yeah, like, no, but it's their life. It's their life. It's their, it's their life. Choice. And it really takes a lot for a person to get to that point of like not having that way on you. It's really difficult. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. It's really difficult. I mean, I can only imagine. Yeah, I don't want that to come off as like, how dare they? You know, I, I, oh. but I, it was like, you know, really hard to not draw blood myself from some of these guys. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't on me to do that. I mean, I had to, it, that wasn't my job. Yeah. Um, but I, I completely understand the feel, the weight of that. There are people inside that will always be inside. Mm-hmm. Always. The end. Like, full stop. They're just always going to be there. Their stories, their lived experiences, their realities. Mm-hmm. Um, any last things that pertain to your work before we get into some of the more light, not lighter, but like, you know, I like to talk to people about curiosity, about joy. I think that's a nice way to kind of cult wrap things up at the end. Um, make sure, th- yeah, make sure all your bullet points are covered because I want to really honor <clears throat> what you're doing and what you know. Um, one of the biggest things, I think, a couple of, the, couple of things here. Um, I'm, I think about when we were talking about child sex trafficking, I really want to hone in on advocates really have to meet a high level of standard. And specifically to work with victims, to meet that confidentiality privilege. And you just don't really want anybody kind of working with a victim because it has that potential to open up any and all communication to be used in court. So people working with victims in Pennsylvania, they meet these training requirements. So, and you have to be overseen by one of the funders. So, you know, it's really hard when there are other people out there thinking that you're not necessarily doing the work and they just start a, start something. Mm. And that's really difficult because we come at it, we are, at the YW, we are mission driven. We are there to empower women and eliminate racism. Mm-hmm. That is our mission mm-hmm. and promote peace, dignity, and freedom for all. Mm-hmm. So that is what we are there for. So we are gonna work tooth and nail to make sure our victims are fully protected. Mm-hmm. And this is how we do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, PCADV and PCAR making sure that we're following standards and we're doing trauma-informed care and we're doing all these stuff and it's just not anybody doing this work. It's really specific to making sure, especially that the client comes first. It's not the business, it's not the agency, it is the victim comes first. Um, And also, kind of in the same vein of where people are gathering information Yes. Because I know there's a lot of misinformation that gets tossed about. Yes. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, making sure you're reaching out to either your local agencies, your national hotlines, 
um, Polaris Project for Human Trafficking specifically. There's the National Network to End Domestic Violence. There's all sorts. There's the National Sexual Violence Resource Center that is right here in Harrisburg. So the National Resource Center is here in our backyard. Right. And to you know, having those resources right here and making sure that we're putting our victims first and giving them the best possible outcomes that we can. Mm -hmm. That is what we are here for. Right. So. And, and a part of that for the general public is to be really mindful about information that you are digesting and mm -hmm. that you are putting out into the universe mm -hmm. because it is damaging to victims and to survivorship and to the integrity of the work that you're doing Absolutely. To speak misinformation on top of that. Absolutely. Making sure you're properly educating yourself. And this is really how people can get involved, is making sure you're educating yourself mm -hmm. from the proper resources. You know, mm -hmm. reaching out to your local YW and seeing mm -hmm. what resources they have. Um, or state coalitions. Every state has a coalition. So there, you know, even just Googling national sexual violence hotline, you know, doing a simple Google search like that, um, not getting your information from just a random Facebook post or something like that. Um, also, like I said, reaching out to your local community, seeing what events they may have. So for Domestic Violence Awareness Month coming up here in October, uh, we have one of our main events is Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're really raising funds for our victim services because we are grant funded and grants don't necessarily pay for every single thing so we have these little holes yeah um and so we we are able to provide more services through the fundraising that we do right. through ywr or through the walk a mile in her shoes event right that fills that holes of gaps yeah and so we can really serve our clients much right. better right mm -hmm. um well done how do you feel good well done you did really, really well. I knew you'd be so good at this. So, so, so good at this. I mean, you're so, so um, knowledgeable, but also that you care so much is so obvious and refreshing. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're oh. doing and your coworkers. I mean, oh my gosh. Well, you, you had the, I was thinking about that. You had the great question of connect, how are connections within the work that, like with coworkers and how essential are those connections? Right, the relationships, yeah. Oh my gosh. I work with an incredible team of people. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. They have supported me in very low moments. We've all supported each other in some way, shape, or form. Um, but it was a real struggle during remote work. Oh, I bet. Um, because more, and I'll talk to just our department, uh, we are very social people. We are very social people, and um, I know a bunch of people ended up really struggling. Yeah. And you know, we were all kind of in our own segues, and we were all like, "Wait, what is going on here?" Yeah. Like, it just got to be too much of a whirlwind. And so we, now that we're starting to come back into the office, like we're all in the office on Tuesdays, which is really cool because I get to see people yeah. again. And so now we're seeing that we're starting to come back into the office. We're seeing all of those connections, yeah. those little conversations that would happen that were either supportive or, hey, I got this idea, or hey, can we collaborate on this? Those are happening it's, again, and I, it's just amazing. I just imagine it's so necessary. Oh, I mean, it's like, so even necessary. in my field, which is not yours, I, I am a different speech pathologist when I have a supportive team of people that I mutually mm -hmm. respect and admire versus when I don't. Mm -hmm. It's just night and day. The, the 
it's like I'm capable of a lot more yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. I'm just, oh, yeah. I am better with others. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. For sure. For like, sure. there are some people that I just love talking, like, just love just listening to. Yeah. Because I think they have such an incredible perspective. Yeah. And it opens up my eyes more to learn one more thing. Right. You know, because I'm, we should always be learning. We should never stop learning. I, so this is another reason that I invited you on because it's called Curiosity Collective because I really, really do believe that our curiosity is, our, our curiosity is the key to connecting with one another. They are, they just continually like cycle one another, you mm -hmm. know? Um, what are you curious about right now? What are you most curious about or eager to learn about? If you could, oh gosh, if you have the time. <laughs> oh, time. I just want time. That's really yeah. what I want. Um, I don't know. I've always just kind of journeyed through life and what has come my way has come my way and I don't know. I know I kind of put you on the spot. It's okay. Well, it seems like just listening to you share a little bit, it does seem like so much of your curiosity is um, around people. And I feel oh. the same way. Like I could just listen to people's stories and I've, I've yeah. been that way my whole life. Yeah. Um, I've always been more of a people person and I'm the type of person that I can sit there on the beach all day and just stare. Watch people. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, my husband makes fun of it because he's like, I cannot do that. He's like, get up and go to the ocean or read a book. And I'm like, no, I can't read my book because I'm too distracted. You want to watch it. I want to watch everybody. Yeah. And so I have always been fascinated by behavior. Yeah. And yeah. I started listening to um, Armchair Expert podcasts. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I just love it because I love figuring out in a very non-judgmental way of how people got to the point mm -hmm. that they're at, what what was happening in their life, mm -hmm. how they made those decisions to get to where they are now. I totally. just and it's not a judgmental thing. It's just I'm curious. Yeah. I mean that's it, right? That's yeah. like and that to me is the it's so delightful. Like curiosity, connection, relationship, delight, all of those things to me are all loop de looped. Mm -hmm. Like they're all together. When's the last time you remember feeling great joy and delight? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I could say easily the uh, the birth of my daughter. Mm. You know, that was an incredible experience. Um, you know, until recently, it, it's seeing my daughter learn and grow because I dealt with a lot of postpartum depression mm. um, in the first year of yeah. like the six to 12 month when she was a lot like her six to 12 months yeah um, I was really dealing with a lot of postpartum depression and stuff like that that didn't hit me until later so after a year I started to feel better I got I you know talked to my doctor all that kind of stuff um, but I think it's fascinating to watch her learn language mm -hmm. and seeing her put now words together to start forming sentences. Like she says, airplane, sky. Mm -hmm. So she's putting two things together, knowing that airplanes are in the sky. Mm -hmm. So, and she's just recently started doing it. So it's just fascinating to watch. Yeah. And, you know, I also 
find such joy in watching my husband with her. Oh. Like, seeing David just fall into a pile of mush around her. Yeah. And he does not care. Yeah. He will wear the purple <laughs> headband yeah. forever. He will, you know, run up and down the hallway with her nonstop. We will watch Elmo endlessly, you know, as we sit there on the bed together. Like, it's just amazing to see th this transformation. Yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful way. That's like a beautiful way to end. Mm -hmm. What the thing that brings you the most delight is seeing this beautiful, kind man be soft mm -hmm. and loving and tender. I mean, perfect. Mm -hmm. That's like the perfect bow. And it's just cool because, like, he is seeing more now of, like, okay, I have a daughter. Like, no, she's mm. – I'm not letting her do this. I, You yeah. know, this is not good. Like, that's not cool or something. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a more – no, that's okay. Like, just the reality of what it is to be, it's a different, he's mm -hmm. seeing it from a different, mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, he's also seeing, too, of, like, not necessarily understanding why previous generations are having issues with, like, because they had daughters, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I think about, you know, maybe my dad and how things were back then. And I think about the rape culture and all of that stuff perpetuating, and not that my dad perpetuated, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying maybe men of that generation didn't necessarily stand up for their daughters as much as they may or should have. So it's awesome seeing a new generation of men starting to do that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It's hopeful. It's very hopeful. It's hopeful. It's very hopeful. Thank you for doing this. Of course. You I'm did so, a great job, so, Joni. I knew you would. I'm so honored that you would ask me to do oh this. I told David, I was like, why? It's just me. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't believe in just me. No, I think you I think you and your colleagues are doing phenomenal work. I think all of us, I think everyone with a pulse can get involved and participate and donate and do the things to make it better. I mean, it will really take every single person engaging in this work in some capacity to Absolutely. eradicate the reality that it will, that it is. Absolutely. And you're at the forefront and you're a leader in it. And I'm, I mean, all hail. I just, I <laughs> bow to you and your colleagues and I'm so, so grateful. And thank you for coming well, over. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, and just getting involved with your community and, you know, if you can't, take the time to educate yourself, at least donate. I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. You know, we're working on a $3.5 million capital campaign right now because we need to do much needed um, updates to our emergency mm -hmm. shelter. Mm -hmm. um, it's an older building, so we need to do updates. Mm -hmm. And so. I'm going to just say this because I don't know this specifically with you, but I do know that people in this line of work tend to make not a living wage in terms of a yearly income for all the hours and time and heart that you're putting into it. You're not making bucks. No. At all. It's a heart it's a heart job, but you're not making money. It is. You and know. you have to you come into this work right. knowing that. Right. You know this work, you won't make the big bucks. Mm -hmm. Um and that's really hard because we all know we deserve so much more. Exponentially more. Exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, I will say the YW is working really hard to that's bridge great. that gap. That's great. Um, you know, we're raising the minimum wage. We're, you know, giving people raises, mm -hmm. you know, when we can. Mm -hmm. um, so it, they are working really hard and they do recognize that. Right. So. And I want to, this isn't, and I want to be clear to you, this isn't a dig on the YW. Absolutely. This is to say jobs that are coded as feminine make less. And the reality of what 
this is a job that is generally funded by or by outside organizations mm -hmm. because it's not something that we culturally value. Yeah. And if we did, we'd pay a lot more. Yeah. So I, I this isn't. And we're not going to charge our clients. Right. That's exactly right. So all of our services exactly are right. free yeah. and confidential. Right. And that's beautiful. And also, if I was a gazillionaire, Joni, I'd pay everybody's shit ton salaries. I'd pay a lot of money to all of you. <laughs> well, thank you. That'd be yeah. amazing. Yeah. So thank you. I'm going to hang up. Um, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, you can visit us at curiosity-collective.org. If you would like to support our efforts to amplify voices like Joni's, you can also become a patron and visit our Patreon account, which is on our website. Thank you so much for listening.